I invite you to join me in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. This morning we are in verses 4 through 6 of James chapter 4. Turn there with me. And as you do that, I want you to listen to this list. Fire and ice, darkness and light, war and peace, evil and good, sinfulness and holiness, love of the world and love of God. James writes, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Last week, we began a series on friendship with the world. And although James does not use that term in the passage we saw last week, verses 1 through 3 of James chapter 4, we saw clearly that it is our love of the world, our friendship with the world, the passions, the envy, the jealousy, the things of the world that we desire that cause problems within our hearts that spill out into our relationships, causing war and fights and even murder. In our passage this morning, he continues that same topic of friendship with the world, And as we've seen, he uses that very term. And as he becomes more clear and pinpoints this actual problem within the church, I want to give you from these three verses three disastrous consequences of friendship with the world. Three disastrous consequences of friendship with the world, this being, of course, within the context of your faith. These disastrous consequences we see all over the world But particularly, specifically, James is speaking of believers, Christians, who are tempted by the world, who have a consistent love of the world. The first disastrous consequence of friendship with the world for the believer is the dangerous ramifications. The dangerous ramifications, and we see this in verse 4. Let me read that for you again. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Throughout the book of James, we have seen and will continue to see James go back and forth between addressing his readers with terms of sharp rebuke and then back to terms of endearment, specifically brethren or beloved brethren. Here, in calling them adulteresses, he is clearly being sharp. He is rebuking them. You're familiar with this term. An adulteress is a woman who is unfaithful to her husband, but is used in Scripture of someone who is unfaithful to God. Remember, James is speaking to people who are ethnically Jewish, Jewish converts to Christianity. And so this audience would be familiar with this term, as it is used often in the Old Testament for them at the time, the Scriptures, the only Scriptures, it is used, adulteresses of the Israelites. This is something most of you are familiar with. Just as with someone who is unfaithful in marriage, this is more than merely being unkind or not displaying affection. 
This is having an actual relationship with someone other than their spouse. So, in the same vein, when the Israelites are called adulteresses, it is more than just a lack of obedience. It's more than just they got angry sometimes or didn't obey certain things that the Lord commanded them through Moses. It is unfaithfulness. In other words, we know they are called adulteresses because of the practice of idolatry, the worship of other gods. Now, in James's context for us this morning, the other god the Christians are worshiping is the world. Although that term is used of Jews in reference to their unfaithfulness to God and their covenant with Yahweh, the principle can be applied to the Gentile church because of the New Testament bride of Christ imagery. We are called the bride of Christ. This is most clearly seen in the church being referred to as the bride over and over again in Revelation, specifically 19 and 20, chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation. And as the bride of Christ, we are, like any bride is called to be, we are to be monogamous. We are to be faithful. We are to have a committed relationship with our God. As such, friendship with the world is adultery. It is unfaithfulness. It is cheating on our relationship with God as the bride of Christ. James says, he doesn't mince words here, he said friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Not annoyance, not dislike by God, it is hostility toward God. Well, if that's the case, we need to understand what exactly is friendship with the world. Now, in God's plan, we are saved in the world, in this world, in this culture, on the planet Earth. We are part of the world. We use the world. We contribute to the world. In other words, we have families. We go to school. We send our kids to school. We get jobs. We get paid. We pay bills with, those, with that pay. We survive on things of the world, food, electricity, air, relationships, society. And as believers, though, we know that these things are not the goal. They are a means to the goal, the goal being the glory of God. We use what He has given us. We survive on this planet until He comes and takes us face to face with Him. We use these things for the ultimate goal of glorifying God. But when we start seeing the world and what the world can give us as the end goal and ultimate fulfillment, then we are engaging in friendship with the world or spiritual adultery. The world is that whole system of humanity that is directed by the devil. It's not that we see the devil everywhere. It's not that everything anyone does is necessarily satanic as we would define it, but we understand the world has values, morals, and institutions that go against the plan of God. In fact, go against what God desired in creating mankind. And you say, well, why do you say it's controlled by the devil? Because the Scriptures say so. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, say that the sinful way of life is according to the course of this world, and the devil. 
whom he refers to there as the prince of the power of the air. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 contrasts the ways of Christ with the ways of the world. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Very clearly, there is a way of men that is contrary to the ways of Jesus Christ. They have no choice. It is what we refer to as total depravity. It is their sin, their enslavement to sin. So that's the world. Friendship is what we understand as friendship. But it helps to understand that this Greek word that is translated friendship for us in James chapter 4, in its verb form, the action word, in its verb form in the Greek in the New Testament, it is often translated love, love of the world. And the idea of loving the world and being an enemy of God because of your love of the world is not a new one. 1 John 2.15 is probably the most well-known and clearest example in the New Testament we have of this. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if you have this constant affection and love for the world, you can't be a believer. Now, that's not to say, as believers, we aren't attracted to the world, that we aren't tempted. We are talking about the difference between someone who sees something, wants it, maybe even buys it, enjoys it, versus someone who is fully engaged and constantly loving the world. They have no desire to invest in the heavenly kingdom, only in their personal earthly kingdom. They have no desire to represent Christ. They want to represent their job, their ethnicity, their family, their wealth, sure, but not Christ. This is what we're talking about when the love of the world cannot be compatible, is not compatible with the love of the Father. But we, as we often see in the New Testament, are warned against the temptations that we find in this life that is full-blown in the unbeliever, but we are tempted to, we must avoid. We must avoid the friendship with the world. And we need to be careful because it's easy. Because the world has a lot to offer us. And the world has a lot to offer us that we really, really, really like. The types of things we find in the world, and we need to be honest with ourselves, they are physically, emotionally satisfying. They make us feel good emotionally and physically. But it is in the desire for those things that we can easily slip into the friendship with the world that is incompatible with the friendship with God. And we see from the terminology, he doesn't just say, well, if you love the world, you can't have a relationship with me. No, he says it is hostility toward God. We must be aware of what our desires are. And notice the way James phrases this in your Bibles. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world. That word wishes speaks of desires and refers to choosing one thing over another. And that in the end is the issue. You may not have the things in the world, but you want them. 
You desire them. Even that desire is dangerous. That's friendship with the world. Because you know people in your life that spend their entire lives pursuing things, sometimes one thing that the world offers. And so the question is, are you choosing the world or are you choosing God? And even in your innermost desires, do you desire godliness or do you desire whatever your definition of the world is? Popularity, wealth, companionship. James goes on. He says that if you choose the world, then you make yourself an enemy of God. These are strong words. They're not my words. They come from God Himself. And the grammar James uses speaks of appointing or ordaining. In other words, you appoint yourself an enemy of God. You make a conscious choice to be an enemy of God when you love the world. And it's not that anyone here would say in their mind, Oh, what a beautiful morning. Today, I choose to alienate God. No one does that. We don't do that. But by our thoughts, by our desires, we often do. It's kind of like when someone strolls into into work an hour late, and that's not okay, okay? They don't work in tech, so it's not okay to come in whenever you want. They have to be there at 9, They stroll in at 10. He didn't wake up and say, hmm, I am going to go in an hour late today to jeopardize my job. No. What he did say is, man, I couldn't sleep last night. I'm tired. I'm going to sleep in a little bit. And then I'm going to go to Starbucks. There's probably a line, but I need my coffee fix. But by making that choice, he has also made the choice inadvertently, to jeopardize his career. And it's the same thing. We may not say, I want to become an enemy of God today, but by our choices, we inadvertently do. By choosing the world, you also make the choice to offend your God. Now, these ramifications are severe. The terminology is not what we are characterized by, It is not something we ultimately desire, and so we must avoid it at all costs. This doesn't mean you can't live in the world. We're supposed to. This doesn't mean that you can't enjoy what God gives you in the world. You're supposed to. And perhaps that's what makes this so difficult and why the line between the two Loving the world and loving God can often seem razor thin. But that's why we need to take the time to evaluate whether we live for self-glory or God's glory. Self-fulfillment or the sacrificial fulfillment of others. Self-serving or serving God and His people. Not occasionally, not when it's convenient, but as a constant theme of our lives. And that's the key. What is the overarching theme of your life? If it is self, then your theme is the world. If it is others, then it is God. And that is the dangerous ramifications of friendship with the world. I want to give you a second disastrous consequence of friendship with the world. 
and that is the denied responsibility. The denied responsibility. Look at verse 5 again. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Unlike the sinful jealousy of man that we saw last week in verses 1 through 3, we know that the jealousy of God is righteous and holy because everything He does is righteous and holy. This becomes especially clear in this verse when James tells us that what God desires passionately is for us to live in accord with that same righteousness and holiness. And James is referencing the Old Testament and is here referring not to a specific passage, but the clear principle speckled throughout the Scriptures of God jealously desiring and demanding total obedience and love from His children, 100%. Now, as you look at that verse, I want to be fair with you. In our verse, the word spirit in the Greek is not clear which spirit it is referring to. It can refer to our spirit, which in this context God has put in us and has redeemed, or it can refer to the third person of the Trinity whom the Father has also made to dwell in us. The Greek is not clear. Usually, the context makes it clear which one is being referred to. Here, it does not. If the title holy is placed before it, we know it is referring to God the Holy Spirit. Here it is missing. So I want to be fair that we can't be definitive on what he is referring to. Now, if you have the New American Standard in your laps, you see that Spirit is capitalized, thus leaning towards the Holy Spirit. The ESV leans toward the human spirit. Now, listen carefully. If it's the Holy Spirit, the meaning would be this. God jealously desires for us to submit to God the Holy Spirit whom He made to dwell in us. If it's the human spirit, the meaning would be this. God jealously desires for us to submit to God in our spirits which He has made to dwell in us. In other words, regardless of which spirit it is, the point is the same. God desires our obedience to Him. When you deny this, you deny the repeated principles of Scripture that call for God's people to obey Him, not sometimes, not when we're bored with the world, but all the time, 100%. The beauty of this, as you know, is we can glorify Him in and through the things of the world. But you understand when you are slavishly idolizing the things of the world and when you are using them to glorify God. More on that in a minute. To James's point, this responsibility, this expectation, this privilege is rejected and denied by the Christian who chooses to fulfill his, his or her own worldly pursuits rather than fulfill their God-given spiritual obligations. Again, you can't have both. And it's not merely because of your limited time and ability, but because they contradict one another. The world is more than a place or a system of thought. If you give in to it, it is your master. And you can only have one master. 
the sin of the love of the world is made all the more weighty and personal when you understand what James refers to in verse 5 is not some general principle in some impersonal book. Rather, this is a specific desire of your Creator and Savior for you. And when I say you as I stand up here, I don't mean plural you as a church, you as an individual, you and your life, the 60 or so different jobs and situations represented in this room. God doesn't just recommend it. He jealously desires it, according to James. 100% commitment and obedience to Him. Well, let's move on. We have a third and final disastrous consequence of friendship with the world. We've seen the dangerous ramifications, the denied responsibility, and finally, the defiant resistance. The defiant resistance. Verse 6. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Last week, we talked about conflict and tension within the church that is rooted in selfish pleasures or sinful desires that we have in the members of our bodies. In other words, our hearts and minds that spill out into envy and jealousy of others so that we fight and hurt others, even in the church. That was the beginning of James's warning about friendship with the world. What we saw is that friendship with the world begins with love of oneself. And because we are selfish, that mindset goes against what God wants, but is fully appreciated and even encouraged by the world. And we know that selfishness is a form of pride. And that selfishness manifests itself in a cornucopia of other forms of pride. And when you understand that, then you understand why James continues his lesson on friendship with the world by warning us of God's view of the proud along with his reward for the humble. If you struggle with friendship with the world, James says there's hope. Christian, don't dismay because God gives greater grace. Don't give up and say, well, I'm such a sinner. I'm just going to go full in, jump right into the world. No, there's grace there. In other words, if you humble yourself and stop seeking the world, then the animosity from God will end. He will extend His grace and mercy. But if you don't, then He will continue to oppose you As stated in Proverbs 3.34, which James quotes here from the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is serious stuff. The word oppose, God opposes the proud, is actually a military term. And it is a military term that refers to a full army suited up, armed, and ready for battle. God opposes the proud. He is in full battle gear to oppose, to attack the proud. And the picture here is appropriate, but the illustration falls short. 
Because any army, no matter how well trained and equipped, can still lose. God cannot. And God opposes the proud. The word proud is literally uh, our word arrogant. It refers to the person who thinks of himself more highly than is proper. And when you think of that terrifying thought of God opposing the proud, please keep in mind that he's not talking about the arrogant guy on television who's bragging about how he's going to change politics or he's going to buy this company and do whatever he pleases with it. We must connect it to what he has been talking about. When James says God opposes the proud, he is talking about people who habitually seek the pleasures of the world. That is whom he is defining as the proud. And the connection is simple. The more arrogant you are, the more you will seek worldly fulfillment rather than God's glory. The more arrogant you are, the more you will seek worldly fulfillment rather than God's glory. Why? Because the opposite of the proud, the humble, are those who see themselves properly in the eyes of God and in turn worship God rather than self. That's the humble, biblically. And to be clear, the worship involves giving everything we can to that object of our worship. If in pride you worship self, then you will try to get all you can for yourself in this world. But if in humility you worship God, then you will give all you can for Him. The God worshiper is subsequently given grace. And we understand, we talk about grace all the time. And you understand as a true believer that grace demands a response. And that response is submission and obedience to the one who gives greater grace. In other words, the response to grace is humility before God. Starting on either path is easy to do. On the one hand, the believer who understands his position before God as a redeemed sinner will be convicted of that sin. And the result will be humility, repentance, service. On the other hand, the one who is selfish doesn't need to try very hard to fulfill selfish pleasures because the world is more than willing to happily give you whatever your heart desires. You simply won't find someone who loves the world but is humble in every other aspect of their life. You won't find it. Because friendship with the world is self-serving pride, and that pride will come out in other ways. For the believer, it's judgment, defensiveness, blame-shifting, gossip, extreme emotionality. Those are the things of the world, and the pride that is in our hearts. And so we must remember Proverbs 3.34, God's view of the proud, but also God's pleasure with the humble. But we would also do well to remember Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. 
And so, we understand the dangers of friendship with the world. And some of us will be sitting here mildly convicted, but then think, eh, I don't really think I love the world. I just have that once in a while. It's not bad. Others will just think, I don't love the world. I'm a Christian. Others of you may be deeply convicted. And so the problem is, how do we gauge? How do we know if we love the world? Well, as we close this morning, I want to give you five practical ways to know if you are engaging in or on the verge of friendship with the world. Now, these are not clear-cut. These are not black and white. It's not if you do this, friendship with the world. If you don't, friendship with God. This is very subjective, and it's not all-inclusive, but I believe they will be helpful. So how do we know if we love the world? Before we get into the five, we need to understand that, again, I've mentioned it earlier, but this is not speaking about a one-time desire for something or enjoying the things in the world, or even the occasional sin. This is a habit of constantly seeking fulfillment in the things that are of the world, such that your drives and your desires look no different than the drives and the desires of unbelievers. We must be careful, because there are many Christians who justify the pursuit of these things by saying, well, I give thanks to God for it, and so it's okay. Well, it's not for me, it's for my kids, and God wants me to be a good parent, so it's okay. After all, God wants my kids to be happy, right? No, 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 no. The happiness of your children is important, but it is nowhere found in Scripture. Christian parents, you are nowhere commanded to make your kids happy. Teach them the Scriptures. Discipline them in the fear of the Lord. Yes, understand this. I am thankful that I have happy kids. But I trust and I hope it's not because we just give them stuff. We want joy. We want them to understand God as much as they can in their sin-stained, depraved little minds. (laughs) But the reality is, When we pursue happiness, we need to be careful because that is the gateway drug to pursuing the world. But here are some gauges of whether or not you are engaging in friendship with the world. In the ancient Greek world, from which James is writing, the idea of friendship involved sharing all things. You get this if you have a really close friend. It's probably your spouse, but others, right? You share things. You buy them meals. You share the stuff. Oh, yeah, you can borrow that. Sure, keep it. Don't give it back. And with that understanding comes our first gauge. Look at your money. Look at what your money is going to. Is all your money going to the world? Do you spend all of your money on worldly things, on self, on things that bring you earthly comfort and pleasure, or are you giving sacrificially? I am not talking about, oh, I'm good because I give to the church. I'm talking about your overarching thought regarding money. Do you sacrifice for other people, for people who are down and out, for people who are in need? Are you sacrificing for people who aren't in need, 
But just because you understand that it is God's money, hey, let me pay for that for you. What's a big deal? We're believers. Belongs to the Lord anyways. I was recently in a a board meeting of a, of a ministry that I serve in that ministers the Eastern Europeans in the United States. And they're having a lot of budget problems. The guy who runs the ministry is uh, doing DoorDash and Uber Eats for a living so he can be flexible and fly to Albania and Croatia and all these places all the time, different places in the U.S. where he has started churches. But he's given a lot of his money to the ministry. And so we're talking as a board, how can we help with this? And one of the board members said something very interesting that I'm going to steal from him and share with you. He said, God has no money issues. God doesn't need money. God's not limited by money. He only has one financial problem, and it is this. The people that he has assigned to be stewards of his money keep it in their own pockets. That's a problem. How do you view money? By the way, seeking earthly comfort involves not only spending on things, but also saving too much for worldly comfort. In fact, when Jesus condemns the love of money, he talks not about reckless spending, but putting it all in storehouses. And you've heard me say this before. The one who is stingy, unnecessarily so, may very well struggle with the love of money just as much as the person who's going around and spending more money than he has. I'm not asking you to give more to the church. I'm asking you to change your view of your finances. Another way to gauge if you're engaging in friendship with the world, aside from looking at your bank accounts, your credit card statements, is looking at how you view Sunday mornings. Is Sunday morning worship a priority for you? And if it is, why? Worship and fellowship or some selfish reasons such as take a break from the kids, keep up appearances, need to catch up with someone. If your attitude in missing church is thinking it's okay because you can go listen later online, you can catch the live stream live, then you've really missed the whole point of believers gathering together. It's not just about the sermon. It's about the family of God acting like a family of God. Engaging in true fellowship with one another, which involves worshiping together as one unit, and that worship includes encouraging one another, iron sharpening iron. Not through texts, not through emails, not through cards. Those are important. Those are good. Praise God for modern technology. But one-on-one, together. And when worldly priorities such as comfort, sleeping in, saving money on gas, hobbies, social engagements, sports, take a back seat to being here physically and emotionally, then you might be putting the world before God. Here's a third gauge. How does the world, meaning your unbelieving family and friends, how do they view you? This isn't just about how you view the world. How do they view you? Do they see you as just one of them who happens also to be a Christian that doesn't put a wrench in their gears at all, just normal? 
can't hang out Sunday mornings or, hey, if we have a big event, they can? Or do they see you as different? Do they see you even remotely close to what Jesus said will happen? They will hate you because they hated me. Are you clear enough about what you believe and how you live that you are distinct? That uniqueness of Christianity and our morality, especially here in the Bay Area and California, drives people nuts. They hate it. But here's the thing. This isn't just the book of Roger 1.1. This is actually from Scripture. What do I mean? The word friendship that James uses is similar to our word friendship in English. In the Greek, it doesn't just include the idea of loving. It includes the idea of being loved. Does the world love you? Do those who are enemies of God, who are totally depraved, love you? I'm not talking about a good testimony. We have to have a good testimony. But understand, a good testimony involves what? Speaking forth and representing Jesus Christ. There's a certain level where people should respect you and appreciate you. Christian, you better be the hardest worker in your office place. You better be the one who does things excellently for the Lord. But do they love you for other reasons? Because you're fun, you joke around, you do the things that engages the world. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I have been crucified to the world. You need to have non-Christian friends. Those people need to hear the gospel. Every unbeliever should have a Christian friend that is sharing the gospel with them. But it's scary how often I hear Christians who say, well, I hang out with the un my non-Christian friends for a break. A break from my Christian friends. This is a major problem. I get it. Ministry is tough. And there's greater expectation of believers. It's we're, we're more tempted to judge believers because we know their standard of morality. Whereas unbelievers, it's a free-for-all, right? We don't care. They should act like that. But we need to be careful. How does the world view you? When you make things of the world your boast, contrary to Paul, your reputation, then of course the world will love you because you haven't crucified the world to your affections so the world sees you as no different. And please, friends, stop disobeying the Scriptures in the name of evangelism. Well, I can't do that because, well, I know, but you know, I'm evangelizing these people. We need to be careful. Another way is your prayer life. I alluded to this last week. Does your prayer life center around personal holiness and others or personal comfort and self? The Lord knows your heart. You need to lift those things up to the Lord, even if it means, Lord, I know this is an ungodly desire. Please change that in me. But what is the theme of your prayers? Look at your prayer life. What do you pray about? You need to pray for God's comfort, God's healing, God's provision. 
It's right there in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. A great reminder that we need to turn to Him even for the very basics of life. As inconvenient as it is, I'm almost thankful, almost thankful. No, I'm thankful for when the power goes out because it reminds us of things we take for granted. Electricity, cold refrigerators, warm beds, heaters. My wife and I were living in Albania when the water goes out, because the, the, the water, and I mean in the city, only turns on three times a day. So if you want to take a shower with running water, you get up early before they turn it off, which is why most homes have uh, big storage tanks. They fill that up. And then we lived in an apartment, so they had a huge, I think the whole basement was just one huge storage tank. And because of that, when there's no power, which happened all the time, they had rolling blackouts because their old communist system couldn't hold all the electricity that people now use, especially in the summer when everyone has AC. And then also because politicians would actually turn off electricity in areas after they've won for regions that didn't vote for them. You think we're corrupt. So, all that to say, no power, no water. Makes you thankful for the basic essentials. We need to pray for those things. Give us this day our daily bread, our daily water, our daily sustenance. But what is the theme of your prayer life? Is it all stuff to make you more comfortable in this world? Or is all somehow footnoted and angled towards eternity with the Lord? Finally, what kind of person do you admire, respect, envy, want to be like? Is it the wealthy for their wealth? The popular for their popularity, the attractive for their attractiveness? Or is it the godly, the humble? Who do you see in this world that makes you go to work on Monday and work extra hard at your job? Is it the guy with the fancy car and the house? And it motivates you to work harder because you too can have that. Or is it the guy who, with absolutely no fanfare, works diligently and sacrificially for the Lord? What pushes you? Who do you want to be like? I could go on. Hopefully those five give you an idea of what to look for. Three disastrous consequences of friendship with the world. The dangerous ramifications, hostility, enemy. The denied responsibility, the obedience God desires of us. And the defiant resistance, pride versus humility. And as I close, I want to close the same way I began by giving you that same list. Listen carefully. Fire and ice, darkness and light, war and peace, evil and good, sinfulness and holiness. And before I give you the last one, I want to tell you what I'm doing. I am not giving you a list of opposites. I am giving you a list of pairs in which one destroys the other. 
friendship with the world and friendship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that in your sovereignty you have placed us in this place, in this time, in this area. We're thankful that we have a faithful high priest who has been tempted and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Father, thank you for the things you've given us to enjoy, that you have gone above and beyond the basic necessities. But help us, Lord, not worship these things or worship the idea of having these things. Help us to be people who pray sacrificially, who pray honestly, but pray in a way that seeks your will. And is in that you will give us the desires of our heart. Help us to be a people who are humble, who love you and not the world, who want to be like the godly, our forefathers in the Scriptures, the godly people who walk, have walked before us and even among us in this church. Help us to be so clear with the gospel, not purposely trying to make enemies, but just naturally because of who we are and whom we serve, that the world would have problems with us. Help us to not be quiet or scared. Help us to prioritize a godly view of our finances. Help us to prioritize being with God's people, especially on Sunday mornings, but also in other times where we would prioritize getting together for fellowship, encouragement, and encouraging others, and not just in the world every other hour outside of Sunday morning. Lord, we are so tempted. We want stuff. We like stuff. We are lonely. We are discouraged. We feel unfulfilled when we look at the wealth around us. But may we, Lord, look to you who has given us everything we need, spiritually, physically, and otherwise. May we find our total fulfillment in you and full encouragement in your people. I pray these things.